Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this week's Highway Community Podcast. This morning, we are continuing our new teaching series entitled Rooted, which is inspired by the prayer that's at the center of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where Paul prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts in a way that would root them in God's love. Paul's prayer for the Christians in and around Ephesus and his prayer for us as followers of Jesus is that God's heart would root itself in our hearts in a way that transforms us, that our hearts would be transformed by God's love and that we would continue to grasp the totally boundless nature of that love. And last week, we talked about the fact that there is no better showcase of the boundless nature of God's love than the sending of his son Jesus into the world. For God so loved the world. God's love was so long and wide and high and deep that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Or, as 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 puts it, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Those verses reveal for us something foundational about God's love, and that is that God's love is active. God's love is active. For God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that he gave his one and only son. And 1 John 4.9 says that this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. And so we hear in those verses that God's love manifests itself in action. God doesn't simply tell us that he loves us. He does something about it. He shows us. He shows us through the sending of his son, Jesus. God's love at its very core is active. And so it shouldn't be surprising then that when Jesus was asked by one of the teachers of the law, which of the Old Testament commandments was the greatest, He said this in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so Jesus, without missing a beat, reveals to the teacher that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But what's interesting is that while Jesus was only asked about which of the commandments was the greatest, he didn't stop with one. He went on to add a second greatest commandment. He says in Mark chapter 12, verse 31, the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to how Jesus concludes. He says, there is no commandment 
greater than these. There is no commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. And so Jesus definitely takes some divine liberty there when it comes to his grammar agreement. Right? The greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. And so for Jesus, loving God and loving others go hand in hand. They are an interdependent pair. And so when God's love takes root in our hearts, it naturally and organically manifests itself, Jesus reveals, in a love for others. It manifests itself in an active love for our neighbors. And we get a very vivid and powerful picture of what that looks like in a story from Luke chapter 10. Jesus is approached by an expert in the Old Testament law who wanted to test him by asking him what he must do in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus replies to him in Luke chapter 10, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And then Luke says that the man asked Jesus another question and he asked him another question in order to justify himself. And the question that he asked Jesus was, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And this time, Jesus responded, not with a question, but with a story. And it's a story about a Jewish traveler who was coming down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as this traveler was making his way along the road, Jesus says that he was attacked by robbers, beaten, and left half dead. And as the traveler was laying there, Jesus says that a priest happened along. But when the priest saw the wounded traveler, he passed by on the other side. Then a Levite came by the place where the man was. And the Levites were effectively the temple set up and tear down team. They prepared the temple for worship. But Jesus says that this man, too, when he saw the traveler laying in the road, he passed by on the other side. Finally, Jesus says that a Samaritan came along, which is a development that deliciously thickens the plot of Jesus' story. And that's because there was literally no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, to say that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like one another would be a major understatement. There were literally hundreds of years of animosity between these two groups, stemming all the way back to when the Assyrians conquered Samaria and merged their people 
and their religion with the Jews who continued to live in the region. And as a result of that, there was tremendous tension racially, tremendous tension religiously, and tremendous tension politically between the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet, despite all of that, Jesus says that as the Samaritan encountered the wounded traveler, he took pity on him. He took the injured man, put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and cared for him. And then, in addition to paying for his room at the inn, the Samaritan paid the innkeeper to look after the injured traveler for the next day and guaranteed any extra expenses that might be incurred as a part of that. Well, after he finished telling his story, Jesus had a question of his own for the expert in the law. He asks him in Luke chapter 10, verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now, Jesus's story, remember, was inspired by the law expert's question, who is my neighbor? But Jesus's question is, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the difference between those questions is significant. But in the law expert's question, who is my neighbor? Grammatically speaking, neighbor is the object. But Jesus's question changes that around. In Jesus's question, which of these three was a neighbor? Neighbor is not the object. Instead, it's the subject. And that very subtle shift in the grammar reveals something really significant. And that is that for Jesus, a neighbor is a subject and not an object. For Jesus, a neighbor is a subject and not an object. The real question is not, who is my neighbor? Instead, the real question is, who acted as a neighbor? Who acted as a neighbor? Well, tomorrow we celebrate a federal holiday that honors the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Back in August, I participated in one of the 10-week workshops that we hosted exploring the life and the teachings of Dr. King, whose tireless and courageous leadership and advocacy for social justice did so much to advance civil rights in our nation during the 1950s and 1960s. And it was both inspiring and enriching not only to read some of Dr. King's sermons, but also to listen to portions of them as a part of the workshop. And as I'm sure is the experience for many of you, the power of Dr. King's voice always has a way of sending chills up my spine. 
And I appreciate how some of the transcripts of his messages include the feedback from the con- congregation in parentheses. And so you've got exclamations like, oh yeah, and that's right, and preach it, punctuating Dr. King's words at just the right time. And one of the sermons that we read as a part of the workshop was entitled, On Being a Good Neighbor. And it had as its text, you guessed it, Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. And as I read Dr. King's sermon, I was really moved by the way that he framed the difference between the Samaritan's response to the wounded traveler and that of the priest and the Levite, because of the way that it really animates this shift that Jesus makes to a neighbor being a subject and not an object. Now, Dr. King notes that this road between Jerusalem and Jericho, where Jesus's story takes place, was a notoriously dangerous road. In fact, he talks about the time that he and Mrs. King visited the Holy Land and traveled along that road. And Dr. King says that that experience actually made him understand why Jesus chose it as the setting for this parable. It was known as the Bloody Pass. And as a result of that, Dr. King suggests that one of the possible reasons that the priest and then the Levite may have failed to stop and help the wounded traveler was fear. That they may have been afraid that the robbers were still nearby and that if they stopped, that they too would have been beaten. Or that perhaps given the reputation of this road, that maybe the wounded man on the ground was a faker who was trying to lure passing travelers into a trap. Dr. King writes, I imagine that the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And so the Samaritan very much saw himself as a subject. And in this particular context, on this, on this windy and treacherous mountain road, he saw himself as the subject. And that moved him to act with an urgency that transcended fear. And so much so that he was willing to put the well-being of another ahead of his own well-being. And Dr. King calls that dangerous altruism. He says, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life 
for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys and hazardous pathways, he will lift some bruised and beaten brother to a higher and more noble life. And of course, those are not words that Dr. King just preached. That was the manner of his life as well. But those are words that he very much lived. And there's no better example of what it looks like to actively love others with the love of Christ than Dr. King himself. His life, like the Samaritan in the story and like even the life of Jesus, reminds us that loving our neighbor is ultimately seen in action. Loving our neighbor is ultimately seen in action. And that's an important thing for us to remember as followers of Jesus, because we are very much living in a culture today that places a disproportionate emphasis on the importance of words. That is the social media culture. There's a lot of emphasis on what we say as opposed to what we do. And that's not to say that words don't matter. It's not to say that saying something isn't important. It definitely is. But the parable of the Good Samaritan rightly and importantly reminds us that when it comes to loving God and loving others, what we do matters as well. Because God's love is inherently about action. Jesus in this story didn't care about the expert's ability to recite the law to him. What Jesus cared about and what he was really pressing into through this parable was the law expert's desire to do it. He was pressing into the law expert's desire to really do and act and live into the law. And that is what makes this story so profoundly challenging and convicting. Because as we consider what Dr. King calls the dangerous altruism that the Good Samaritan models for us, at the same time, Jesus' story presses us to consider the ways that we are like also the law expert and the priest and the Levite. Right? It presses us to consider the ways that, like the law expert, we look to detach ourselves from our vulnerable neighbors. Or to consider the ways that, like the priest and the Levite, we maybe choose to pass by on the other side. Or to consider the ways that we choose not to see, and that we choose not to be involved. God has undeniably and unmistakably shown his love to us through action. And he calls us to love him and to love others in the same way. When God's love takes root in our hearts, it is ultimately seen in a selfless and sacrificial love 
for others. When God's love takes root in our hearts, it is ultimately seen in a selfless and sacrificial love for others. And so where are the places, big and small, where God is inviting us to choose love? Would you pray with me? And in honor of Dr. King, this morning I'm going to close us with the words of one of his prayers. May these words be resonant in your heart this morning and throughout this week. God, we thank you for the inspiration of Jesus. Grant that we will love you with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and love our neighbors as we love ourselves, even our enemy neighbors. And we ask you, God, in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, to be with us in our going out and our coming in, in our rising up and our lying down, in our moments of joy and in our moments of sorrow until the day when there shall be no sunset and no dawn. Amen. Amen.